0: Happy Saturday. It is July 3rd, 2021, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. Happy 4th of July, Michael.
1: Happy 4th of July, Ashley. You know why I love this holiday? just reminds me of being a kid and blowing off firecrackers. That's why. It brings out... I put this question out there to any young man listening... Wasn't it great to be a pyromaniac when you were a kid? It was great. Just burn stuff. Like
0: I'm so sorry. You were a pyromaniac?
1: Not a pyromaniac, but like you lived for Fourth of July when like you could just blow stuff up. You always had like, there was always the bad father in the neighborhood who like had the trunk full of firecrackers and fireworks that he'd driven down to Kentucky to get. And he's like going to stand out on the front lawn. And just be the bad dad, but make all the kids in the neighborhood happy. And then you'd be like, Wow, that guy's really cool. But of course you found out he was a bad there was always something great, you know? And then the next day you'd walk around and try and find duds and see if you could light those and make them fizz. Fireworks.
0: Come that on. was that was fun. I know I agree with I mean, we're Midwesterners, so we were both we were up to all sorts of crazy behavior on the Fourth of July, but in a good way.
1: But happy Fourth of July, everyone. Hope you're lounging, relaxing enjoying, parading, tanning, boating, whatever you want to do, whatever I-N-G you want to be, you do you.
0: <laughs> Michael and I are starting off our day the caffeinated way. I'm not yet cracking open a frosty one and lounging in the sun, but we'll get there. By the end of this episode, that's where we're going to be. Exactly. So Michael, what, what do you have for us in the issue this week?
1: Well, I have a very fun, nostalgic romp by my good friend and our airmail contributor, David Camp. It's about how Liz Taylor met her sixth husband, the soon-to-be Senator John Warner, wasn't even a senator yet, during the bicentennial celebrations in America in 1976. And it's a great, very fun read. Look at it this weekend when you're lying in the hammock or on your back porch. It'll just make you smile. It talks about how Davis has got this great reporting of the story that John Warner told him some years ago. Warner in 1974 gets a phone call from Richard Nixon. Warner's just left his job as Secretary of the Navy. He begs him to take over the Bicentennial Commission. Warner does. Does a great job leading it, culminating with the big celebrations like Operation Sail in the harbor of New York City where all the big ships came in. Gerald Ford, by this time as president, celebrates everything. It kind of culminates for Warner a couple days after the 4th of July, when he gets a phone call, urgent phone call from his friend, who was then the British ambassador to the U.S., who telephones him and says, listen, there's a reception for Queen Elizabeth tonight in Washington. There's someone coming who's a friend of the Queen's, who is an unescorted lady, and you're a bachelor. You're recently divorced. So could you do us a favor and escort her? Warner says, sure. It turns out to be Liz Taylor. So Warner drives his battered old Lincoln over to the hotel to pick her up. So Liz slides into his old Lincoln. They drive over to the reception. And despite some bad behavior by Liz Taylor, she at one point throws a tantrum when she's told that protocol forbids her from accompanying the queen as she walks into the garden, in the Rose Garden. And then Taylor throws such a tantrum that she rips the hem of her dress that has to hastily be mended. Anyway, they have a lovely time. At the end of the night, she's sort of saying, so what are you doing next? And he's like, listen, I've just spent the last two years organizing probably the biggest 4th of July party this country's ever seen. I'm going back to my farm in Virginia. I'm going to ride some horses. Uh, the kids, My kids might come by. And uh, so Taylor says, oh, um, well, maybe I'll stop by when I come back. He says, sure. So on her way to the airport, she calls him. She takes a look around. Then she says, I'll be back in a little bit. She comes back later and as Warner says, so when she next came by, he says, I noticed that they unloaded a lot of suitcases and she never left. So he became husband number six at the time she was. She had recently remarried Richard Burton. She was now divorcing him again, separated. Warner slid in there as husband number six. Like I say, a very fun Nostalgic romp set against the Fourth of July in 1976. I love this uh, Queen Elizabeth II and Queen Elizabeth Taylor uh, kind of bringing John Warner together. Fun, fun little story.
0: This is a great piece. And I love the backstory from David. You know, he says, a few years ago, I sat down for a chat with former Senator John Warner at his office in Washington, at a Washington, D.C. law firm. And Warner passed away on May 25th. So, just a few weeks ago. And he related to him the story of this long forgotten stint as the head of the U.S.'s bicentennial celebration. This is kind of a classic David Camp out of nowhere story, but it is so relevant and interesting and incredibly fun.
1: Great photographs supplement as well.
0: Oh, great photos. Ann Schneider, our fearless photo editor, has really come up with some good ones on this. And I mean, Elizabeth Taylor was just such a I can never tire of looking at her, like whether it's in a film or in a still image or on screen, like she's just pretty amazing to watch. Speaking of other women with titanic implications, we have a wonderful inside story this week by Jim Kempton. He has come out with a wonderful new book called Women on Waves that traces the backstory of women in the world of surfing before it was the surfing industry. And he goes back and takes a look. He extensively researches this and discovers that women's surf history is a history of surfing itself. And Jim used to edit and publish Surfer Magazine. Uh, So he's been in this world for a very long time. And he met a ton of remarkable women. And it surprised him you know, how few of them had had their stories told and their accomplishments documented. So he set out to do this in this book. And it's very inspirational and also visually quite stunning because he catches all of the top surfers like Lisa Anderson and Justine DuPont catching these massive waves. And he comes down quite firmly on the side of the fact that he thinks... The Future of Surfing is Female. It's
1: a fun piece.
0: Certainly. Well, speaking of writers, we have another writer on the show, even though he seems to be in denial about it. Mr. Graham Norton is here to talk about his new novel. Welcome, Graham. Watch out. All right. So we have Graham Norton here now. We might think of him best as an entertainer, but it turns out he's one hell of a novelist and memoirist. And Graham, this is your, is this your third novel that's coming out today?
2: It does seem odd, but yes, it is my third novel. <laughs> I've written two others. Yeah, I hope this is the best one. Hopefully, you know, there's trajectory as you write novels and you get better at it. So I think this is my best one so
1: far.
0: It really struck me, the difference in tone between who we know you to be through your fabulous show and who you, sort of the more somber, thoughtful, not that you're not thoughtful on television, but literary, intellectual heft of this book. You strike me as one of those geniuses who can do everything well. And if I didn't like you so much, I would totally hate you for that. Uh, tell me a little bit about Graham, the entertainer versus Graham, the novelist.
2: I guess, that you know, entertainment came to me first and came to me easier. So, you know, I think you can't, I think some people who write, they kind of, Hate that that persona, the first persona, kind of comes into play, and people think compare the books to the person on TV. But it's my day job. That's what I do. So even if I stopped doing any TV, any chat shows now, and wrote novels for the rest of my life, I would always be former chat show host, <laughs> Graham Norton turned novelist. I will never be a writer. So I'm aware of that. The thing that I was trying to do with the books, because for me, reading is a really intimate entertainment. You want it's just you. It's you and that page and those marks on the page and you get lost in that story that world, those characters and so what you don't want is the author sort of peering over your shoulder and and getting in the way of you and the page and the danger of being certainly in britain of being graham norton off the telly is that the reader's constantly thinking oh graham wrote this i wonder if if one of that happened to him oh i wonder if if one of this and so i really try to extricate myself from the books as much as possible so you know in the first couple of books, there weren't any gay people, there were no jokes, they're not set in any media world, London, anything you might associate with me aren't in there. And that was all deliberate, trying to kind of get the reader to forget that Man in Shiny Suit off television did write this.
0: Well, let's talk about home stretch. So this takes us back to 1987. We find our characters in the aftermath of a great tragedy in a very small and close-knit Irish community. Um, and uh, Tell us a little bit about why why you started there. Why we're back in Ireland. What was the genesis of the book?
2: Well, the genesis was basically I spend. Uh kind of three, four months every year here. And because Ireland's so small, if something happens, there's no local news. It's all just the news. If something, if something happens, it's on the news. So things that you wouldn't hear about, here we do. So every summer you hear about these crashes. Young people, too many of them in car. Sometimes there's drink involved. Normally it's just kind of that recklessness of youth where you think no harm can come to you. And The thing that I noticed about some of these crashes is that quite often, the driver of the car is one of the survivors. And that kind of got stuck in my head about like, what the hell happens to that life? This life that has hardly begun. And in a split second, you have killed your friends you've killed the children of your parents friends you're in a small town you will never get away from that unless you flee so i just wondered what happened to that life how did that life play out and that was the starting point then because of a plot element the, there was a sexuality issue in the book, which became a kind of a major theme of the book. And, and then by accident, that opened up a whole thing about how Ireland has changed since 1987, which wasn't my intention, but it made the book much broader and kind of gave it a, a bigger canvas, I guess.
0: What is your writing process like? When do you get this done? Where do you do it? Who are your best editors and sounding boards?
2: I say, I'm not a writer, so I do this for fun. you're
0: not allowed to say that, I'm sorry.
2: Well, you know what I mean. If you interview an actual writer and ask them about the process, they will have an answer. They'll go, well, I get up and do this and do that. I interview writers, I know this, but that's not me. Basically, if I have a free afternoon or a free day and a laptop, then I'll... That's uh, I'm in because it's my pleasure. It's my hobby. Lena Dunham describes her artwork, you know, as a, as a, as a, as an artist, she describes it as a credible hobby. And I would describe my writing in a similar way. It's a credible hobby. Um, so, I, I I don't describe it as a process, really. It is it is just something I do when I can because I enjoy it. I mean, I do have a deadline, and so it becomes slightly more like work. I give myself a year to write these books. So in the last sort of three months, it becomes a bit more like a job, and I have to be pretty focused because, you know, sometimes I'm ahead of schedule, sometimes I'm behind. But I'm oddly, I was never a kid who was able to hit a deadline with homework or anything. As an adult, turns out I'm good at it. You know, the day of deadline, I mean, it's not, the you know, the ink isn't dry, but boom, day of deadline, that book's in, I've done it.
0: Were you working on this during the pandemic or did you finish it before?
2: Well, now, I i <laughs> I'd nearly finished it. The last chapter was supposed to be spring 2020. And I'd just come back from New York and, you know, the news of the theaters shutting and we were getting it. here. And I thought, I can't have a, I can't finish this book in spring 2020. You know, I can't throw in a pandemic as a sort kind of curveball plot twist at the 11th hour. So I thought long and hard. I thought, oh, I know. I'll finish it in September. 2019. And that solved that problem. So it's going to be really interesting, I think, moving forward. I've read a couple of books that have been written during pandemic, but sort of set now. And they don't really deal with it. They just refer to mask wearing that happened in the past. I mean, it's. I think there's going to be pandemic novels. Do we want to read those? I'm not sure we do. But equally, we've got to refer to a world that's been through it. I wonder what will happen in fiction.
0: Well, we love your sense of optimism. How did you get your show done? Like, tell us about your life during all these interminable lockdowns.
2: We were planning to come back for a season at the end of March, Uh, beginning of April. And so the people who work on my show, they're on short-term contracts. They all thought they were coming back to work. And then it looked like nothing's happening. So BBC basically said, can you make us something? And we went, well, we can cobble something together. So we made a show sort of in my back bedroom with me, you know, like this, talking to computers. And it was terrible. But it meant that everyone was employed. And it was really boring to make, really tedious. But, and also it gave me something to do as well. I shouldn't complain entirely because actually talking to friends who, people who were furloughed or lost their jobs or whatever, it wasn't just about money. It was just about, too much time to think. So I was really grateful that I did have a focus to my week, that I was able to do this show. And then in the autumn, when we came back, we were back in a studio. So we'd cameramen and sound guys, and sometimes we'd a little audience, but then they got banned. So we'd, we'd no audience. And... It, And I mean, you miss the sound of 600 people, but you don't miss the sound of a socially distanced little groups of four people dotting around an audience just going (laughs) like someone's emptying a bucket of fish. You know, a a bad dynamic for a performer is to feel sorry for the audience. And we felt sorry for them. So in a way, it was kind of good that they got sent home. And hopefully when we get back this autumn, we'll have a, a full audience again.
0: You're such a convivial guy and on your show, you're always surrounded by fascinating people and you seem to have such fun and thrive on the energy of others. What was it like for you personally to be, to find yourself in such drastically altered circumstances?
2: That is a good question and I should have an answer to it. Um... (laughs) (laughs) I'm <laughs> very self-reflective. Whatever I did, it wasn't sitting around going, "How is this affecting me?" I suppose work was good because I got to talk to some people, and then I also do a radio show at the weekend, and that continued from the radio studio. So I did get to go to a job, and I saw some people there.
1: But then, let me ask you: You're a man who, as I say, like you, you can. I think what many people find surprising about this book is the, is the sensitivity and the compassion you have in your voice, the awareness of others, to locate yourself in that character, in those characters. So I know you're probably going to stonewall me on this, but I'm just going to ask it anyway. Where's Graham Norton's vulnerable point? And like someone were going to put you on your own show, what would the writers be drilling into?
2: I mean, that's the thing. I guess I wouldn't be on my own show. <laughs> I'd be a bad booking. I hope the guests don't feel vulnerable. Maybe we're using the word vulnerable in a different way. I mean, maybe they're unguarded. I would, I would hope they're unguarded when they're on the show or relaxed. But equally, I hope they don't feel like something bad's going to happen or they feel, you know, to me, vulnerable means like you're lying on your belly and someone's holding a knife. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't a good idea
1: i think i'm probably using it in that more sense of like they sort of find themselves revealing to you because somehow like they trust you and not somehow but because they do and that and it's that like i can't believe i'm saying this right now but blah, 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 here it goes right and
2: there's that also thing I think they feel slightly safe because they're on the couch with other actors and things. And actors love spending time with actors. And the other people they love is sports people. When we bring on a sports person, actors, it's like they're at a petting zoo. They don't understand the sports person at all, but they are in awe of how good that person is at something. That they've got a skill, this physical skill.
1: It's totally right. Because like, I've seen that happen. Athletes show up and all of a sudden they're, they're literally the alpha dog in the room. Right. And I think because you're right. Actors know like, actors are just circus animals. They're trained. Right. And then here's this thing that comes on. It's just like, you guys are just like, you sit in cages. I go out, I do stuff. I go hunt and kill, and I make things happen. And you yeah. just like jump through a hoop because someone hits you with a cane, and that's it. And they know it deep down.
2: They really respond to to sports people. You're right, but I think in terms of saying the things they weren't going to say, I think often it's because they're sharing accounts with people they like, or they want to make laugh, or they want to kind of. They told this story, so I uh, know I'm going to. I'm going to try and tell a better story. I'm I'm going to reveal something about myself, and also you feel less. I think you feel less exposed or less foolish. If it's just you and the host and they ask you to eat your fist, then you do kind of think, oh, do I really have to eat my fist? But if you're sitting beside someone and they've just bitten their toenails, then you can go, oh, well, here goes, I'll eat my fist. So I think there's that, that you're not alone. You're 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 not feeling completely picked on because it's quite democratic.
0: Is there anyone, Graham, that you haven't had on the show that you'd love to get?
2: I mean, Julie Roberts has never been on. I don't know what we ever did to Julie Roberts, but she's never been on. Um, Brad Pitt has never been on. I yeah, he's never been on.
0: Well, well, congratulations on this magnificent novel. You're you're making Michael and I feel lazy, and now I think we can go into our week inspired.
2: Um, all right, look, thank you, and sorry for stressing you out with timings and things.
0: Graham is so humble, Michael, but he's also so clueless. I mean, this guy's book, by the way, is better than 95% of the books you're going to find on the fiction shelf at your local Barnes and Noble. So don't worry about it one bit, Graham. You're a star and we're just thrilled to have you on the show. Come back.
1: Lowering expectations is a very good strategy for for a writer,
0: right? Yeah, he's like, please don't pick this book up. It's just a side project. Meanwhile, I devoured it in about four hours. So, Well, Michael, before we head off into the holiday weekend, do you have anything at all to recommend?
1: I would recommend you have a lot of ice on hand this weekend, plenty of limes, plenty of lemons, some mixers, and make sure that you've got enough charcoal for the grilling. And then um, just make sure it's dark when you light off the fireworks oftentimes people get a little eager it's still dusk especially as long as like we just wait until it's really dark and then but that's that's all I'd recommend and just be safe have a great time enjoy your holiday because Ashley and I are going to be
0: that sounds great Michael on that note please read us out
1: Morning Meeting is produced by AirPlay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. And our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis. And our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on Airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe. At Apple Music or Spotify. Most of all, thanks for joining us and have a happy 4th of July.